0: The following sermon audio is from the Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about the Source can be found at www.sourcechurch.net.
1: So today's passage is from Hebrews chapter 7, which is on page 1247 if you have this Bible. Again, that's 1247 if you have this one. Otherwise, it's Hebrews chapter 7. If you can stand for the reading of God's word. Read this for us. I'll do this. A longer passage for today. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a a tenth of his spoils? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also, also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives." One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord, who was descended from Judah, and in connection with that that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. This is the word of God.
0: Morning. Please bow with me and we'll spend some time in prayer. God most high, we rejoice this morning that you are also the God who keeps covenant with your people. And your word declares that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We praise you for this steadfast love and this faithfulness that are seen across the pages of Scripture and also across the pages of history world history, and also the history of our lives. But Lord, we know that while your character is unchanging, ours is fickle. We have grumbled, we have turned from you, we've been ruled by selfish disappointment rather than by love and trust. We've considered ourselves more important than others. We have hoped in things that bring death, not life. And so, Lord, we pause right now to silently confess these sins to you. And even as we repent of our drifting, we celebrate that in Christ, your mercies are for us. Your steadfast love is ours as a free gift. And your faithfulness, in your faithfulness, you forgive us, you renew us, you change us. You're still true as ever this morning. When we see you rightly, God, when we see your steadfast love rightly, it is our greatest source of joy today and every day. And as we think of your steadfast love to us, Lord, we, we celebrate that you've gathered us here this morning. We celebrate that we have life and breath and health. Um, there's, that we know you, we know your son, we have access to your scriptures. We thank you that we can meet in this building Thank you for Plymouth Congregational Church, and Lord, we pray for the Plymouth congregation that meets after us. We ask that um, your Spirit would be powerfully at work among them this Sunday and every Sunday. We ask that you would keep them centered on your gospel, that you'd keep them richly trusting and and living out your Word. And Lord, we pray for Pastor Bill Beagle and also his wife Stella. We ask that you'd Continue to give them strength for the work and joy in the work. Lord, thanks also for sustaining Brett Llewellyn during his stressful turnaround season at work and the extended hours and time away from his family that that involved. We pray now that you'd give him rest and you'd refresh him both at home and here among his family of faith. We know that others also have unique pressures at work and are wrestling with how best to honor you in those circumstances. So, Lord, for all who find themselves in those situations, we ask that you would give them wisdom, that you would cause their work to bear much fruit as they devote it to you. Lord, your word says that the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. So teach us to wait upon you in expectation and to seek you together in the context of our life groups. Uh, just as Alma was saying, Lord, we, we pray that you'd enable us to, to uh, embrace the newness, um, to, to persevere through the awkwardness or any insecurity or anxiety or discomfort. I pray that we would, we would persist and we would see the beauty emerge, the beauty of new friendships, of new insights in your word, of mutual prayer for one another, of stronger community, of your work, the work of your spirit in our midst. That's what we long to see, Lord. And I pray that your goodness to souls who wait for you and seek you would also be seen in our children. Lord, we pray that you would grant them that sort of demeanor, that they would each long for your word every week, even though they probably wouldn't be able to articulate it like that. I I pray that they'd have a genuine excitement to meet together, not just because of the fun that they're going to have, but even more because of the thrilling nature of the God that they're getting to know. So, Lord, provide our kids with everything they need to grow, including more volunteers for children's ministry, all the resources they need. We ask that you would be shaping their hearts. Lord, we pray that your spirit would also be active, strengthening, comforting, guiding faith and Phoebe in this first semester of their college experiences. May Jesus Christ be magnified in their thoughts today and every day. And we pray also for Ethan as he presses in with his new trade. Give him joy in that. Lord, we ask that your favor would be clearly seen by Nancy Formisano at Sunny Hill Nursing Home. God, for her and others in our midst who suffer physically, let them remember with joy that the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. But I also think of um, Jen Hill. We pray that you would comfort her in the midst of her health challenges right now. We pray that you would heal her, that you would give her great courage and peace. And Lord, for all of us, in the midst of diverse circumstances, we cry out to you according to your word. We say, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will hope in him. So strengthen our hope and teach us to hope in deeper ways today as we consider from your word how Jesus introduces a better hope through which we draw near to you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've hinted at it for some weeks now, and today we, we finally get to it. A discussion of Jesus as high priest. Remember, Jesus as high priest is part of that solid food that in chapter 5, the author of Hebrews didn't know if we were quite ready for. Uh, But now he's getting into it. and uh, So I'm going to read, as we go through this section, I'm going to read the text again in different chunks because I want you to hear it. I want you to hear it repeatedly because it is a little complex. It's tricky to grasp, and that's okay. Now, if you're the average 21st century American, you'd, you'd probably say, High priest, so what? I don't really care who's high priest or or why or how. And I understand that sentiment, right? This discussion feels a bit removed from your day-to-day reality. But I hope that you can see that actually the concept of high priest is incredibly relevant to how we approach our lives every day. A priest is someone who advocates for a person in need and and seeks to elevate them into the favor or experience of the deity. So the priest is the the one who touches and handles the mysteries and serves as a mediator. The specifics about your priest will depend upon who or what you worship. For example, if you're a Muslim, then you're going to need a priest who can lead all the chants and rituals in Arabic and, and also bless certain killings of animals. If you're a Druid, and yes, those do exist today. It's actually quite popular in Europe. Uh, your priest might talk to the tree spirits on your behalf. If you're into mindfulness spirituality, uh, then your guide functions like a priest to coach you in certain yoga and meditation exercises. But we can think about priesthood even beyond those overt religious categories. Maybe music is the divinity you seek, and if so, then Elvis or Jim Morrison or Nick Cave have all at different times been called the high priest of rock. Or maybe, like a lot of our society, you've become convinced that politicians can make it better. They can affirm your lifestyle in the way that you need, and so Mitch McConnell or Nancy Pelosi become priestly figures. We could go on to talk about how Warren Buffett is high priest of investments or different sports figures or high priest of the, the type of fulfillment that you derive from that entertainment. But while those examples get after the, the broad relevance of this concept of priesthood, they may not get after how deeply we feel about this. How, how much is at stake in our choice of priests? So let's get a bit more personal. Maybe romance is your God, and so at times, that significant other has borne the authority of a priest or high priest, high priestess in your life. I actually, I just heard a Red Hot Chili Peppers song on the radio is, um, she's my priestess, I'm her priest, like this, I'm not making this stuff up. But the thing is, no relationship can really be healthy with that sort of weight of expectation that we put on the God of Romance. Uh, And the priests thereof. Maybe your God has been just any kind of escape. And so your high priest is your drug dealer. Or your bookie. Or whoever can facilitate whatever addiction it is. My point is that we all have functional gods that we place our hope in. And therefore we look to others as priests on our behalf. Who can help bring those hopes to fulfillment. If it's the wrong hope. And the wrong priest, well, then their help just won't be helpful. In fact, it'll be harmful in the end. This can be true of mentors or role models or heroes that we look for as advocates to kind of justify our progress in our professions or, or whatever pursuits mean the most to us. Um, I remember how shocking it was when Sarah pointed out to me that I had a tendency of looking to a certain type of man to, uh, to affirm me in ministry, and when I wasn't getting that, I, I kept getting burned by that need for their approval as a sort of perceived gateway to the approval of God. I was treating them like a priest. You see, we all put our hopes in the hands of priest figures, but the question is, is it the right one? In order to show us how Jesus is better than any priestly figure that we could turn to, here in our passage for today, we're going to study an obscure but fascinating encounter from 4,000 years ago. So last Sunday, we left off with chapter 6, verse 20, which says that Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Mel, who? You might say, I don't remember seeing any Melchizedek when I was watching The Chosen. Well, as if he anticipated our head scratching here, the author of Hebrews, he's going to tell us, he's going to remind us all about Melchizedek, starting in chapter 7, verse 1. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. All this info, by the way, is being drawn from Genesis 14. So I actually want to pause and read there. Genesis 14, starting in verse 17. After Abraham's defeat of Chedorlaomer, the most difficult name to pronounce in the Bible, I feel, um, and the kings who were with him, so this this great military victory that Abram had, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine he was priest of God most high and he blessed him and said blessed be abram by god most high possessor of heaven and earth and blessed be god most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand and abram gave him a tenth of everything so we see that as abram is returning from this largely successful military rescue campaign this mysterious figure named melchizedek just appears and he brings out bread And wine, that's quite interesting imagery given what Jesus would do with bread and wine so many centuries later. Well, this Melchizedek is called priest of God Most High, but given the fact that this this is a totally pagan area where we thought that only Abraham carried the knowledge of the true God, so from where did this figure arise? There are actually all kinds of conspiracy theories about Melchizedek. I would encourage you not to pursue those. ...on the internet, uh, but I'll just give you a taste. Some say he's Shem, the son of Noah, who, according to the genealogies, still would have been alive at that time. Some say he's an angel. Some say he's a Christophany, or an an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. Or the text certainly allows that he could just be a normal man... ...who God had raised up and, and stationed here at this point in history... Uh, To stand for the knowledge of God in a godless place. Whatever the case, Abram recognizes Melchizedek's importance immediately. And he gives him a tenth of everything that he has. And then Melchizedek blesses Abram. And then Melchizedek disappears from the pages of our Bible. At least for a thousand years. Then, one thousand years later, at that time, David, seemingly out of nowhere, in Psalm 110 has this messianic vision picturing God speaking to the coming forever king. And verse 4 says, The Lord, now, whenever in your Bibles you see the Lord in all caps, that's actually, the the Hebrew there is Yahweh, the covenant name of God. Just wanted you to, to be aware of that. So Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So David wrote that, and and then Melchizedek disappears from the pages of our Bible again. And for centuries, people must have been thinking, what? Like we thought whoever Melchizedek was, he was kind of this one-off. But now he's got an order? And how can a king in Israel also be a priest? Those two offices are separate. And how could anyone be a, a priest forever anyway? So rather than saying something specific about this coming son of David, I I bet a lot of people felt like this was almost creating more confusion. But then, after another thousand years, the author of Hebrews picks up these seemingly random pieces of Genesis 14 and Psalm 110, and he draws the line to their fulfillment in Jesus. And the first thing that we're meant to see is that Melchizedek resembles the son of God, We see this in verses one through three. Melchizedek is meant to point us to Jesus. As already mentioned, he was priest of God most high. Well, that certainly sounds like Jesus. You remember back to chapter three, we were told to consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. But also in verse two, Melchizedek is it says, he is first by translation of his name king of righteousness. Then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. So what this is doing is pointing out to us that the name Melchizedek is actually a combination of two Hebrew words. There's melek, meaning king, and there's zedek, meaning righteousness. King of righteousness. This guy's name literally means that. And it's fascinating here that this Melchizedek is priest and king. As you know, in Israel's history, these two offices were never combined because neither kings or priests were totally righteous, and so they weren't entrusted. No one was entrusted with both roles, just like how our country's government has a separation of powers because that's to protect us from the flaws of any one leader. And we see in the Old Testament history that King Saul, he took it upon himself to make a sacrifice for the people And then he lost his kingship because of it. And then centuries later, King Uzziah, he went into the temple and he tried to offer incense like a priest, and he was struck with leprosy as a punishment. So king, priest, separate in Israel's history. But here in Melchizedek, we have a celebrated priest who is also a king. And he's king of Salem of Salem, apparently this is what Jerusalem was called before it was Jerusalem. Actually, if you break it down, Jerusalem just means city of Salem. Okay, but what does Salem mean? It's the Hebrew for peace. It's a cognate of shalom. So, the king of righteousness is also the king of peace. And his kingdom, even though it was just this small city-state at the time in ancient history, his realm points us to the greater realm of peace, which we long to belong to as citizens. Could this sound any more like Jesus? Righteousness and peace is not that what we're all seeking. We, we may have different definitions of righteousness and peace, but we, all exi- we desire this existence that feels pure, that feels whole. And when you think about it, there can never be lasting peace without righteousness. And whenever there is true righteousness, it does lead to peace. Well, next we're going to consider how Melchizedek seems to have just kind of popped into and out of history. Because we know nothing about him, he is fatherless, motherless, genealogy-less. And we don't know that he was literally, but he at least is literarily. He appears that way on the pages of Genesis. And so, because of that, is a type for Christ he points us to Jesus and the incarnation so this silence about Melchizedek's background it speaks loudly to us all the lines of priests at the time and even today uh, well not so much today and in some traditions today um, but definitely in the ancient world priesthoods were according to family line and so you know just like the Jewish priesthood in Aaron was but and, and so if that's the case, if it's, if it's a line of priests, you know when the person becomes priest, right? Because their dad died, so then they're the priest. And then you know when their priesthood ends, because they die. That's how it works normally. But not so with Melchizedek. He's just kind of dropped here. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever, Because the priesthood of Melchizedek seems to have no time boundaries, it does resemble the ministry of Jesus on behalf of his people. Now, musicians and sports stars and politicians, even religious heroes, will die. But what if you could have an advocate who is permanent and could certainly bring you to God? Since the Bible was silent about Melchizedek's origins or his end, Melchizedek foreshadowed the ongoing ministry of Jesus. He's an ancient picture that anticipated the Son of God just kind of descending into human history to serve as our mediator. Now, a second major emphasis for us to note in this passage is that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and therefore Melchizedek is also greater than Levi, who is a descendant of Abraham. That's our second point. You can see this in verses 4 through 10. So Levi, we're going to hear that name more, Uh, Levi was one of the 12 sons of Abraham's grandson Jacob, also known as Israel. So one of the 12 sons of Israel, became one of the 12 tribes of Israel, was Levi. And under the law of Moses, the priests of the people of Israel were to all be descendants of the tribe of Levi. Now let's look at these verses and look for markers of Melchizedek's greatness over Abraham and Levi. It says, see how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office um, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. That is, from their brothers, though these also, their brothers, are descended from Abraham. But this man, Melchizedek, he does not have his his descent from them, and he received tithes from Abraham. So tithes, which is um, giving to show devotion. The reasoning of this section is saying that the priesthood of Melchizedek, whatever that is, is greater than the priesthood that was present for so many centuries following in the Jewish tabernacles and temples. And this is true because Abraham, the great-grandfather of Levi, paid tithes to Melchizedek. Under the Jewish religious law, tithes were paid the Levitical priests. But here, Abraham, the great ancestor of the Levitical priests, pays tithes to someone else and needs to be blessed by someone else. So, verse 6 says that Melchizedek blessed him who had the promises. He's so great that he can even bless Abraham. Abraham, at this point, is like the the most blessed man on the planet. If you remember Genesis 12, God had promised Abram all these things. I will make of you a great nation. I will... Bless you, make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is Abraham's greatness. So great that one day all clans across the globe would be blessed through him. And yet we read in verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So Melchizedek is somehow greater than this uniquely great man that he's blessing. Melchizedek is great because of the tithes he receives. He's great because of the blessing he's able to give. He's also great because of his timelessness. Verse 8 emphasizes that in the one case with the Levites, the tithes are received by mortal men, literally dying men. But in the other case, by Melchizedek, one of whom it is testified that he lives. And this comes into play later. It goes on to, to tag on that one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. We don't normally speak like that, do we, about uh, being in the loins of one's ancestor. But the the meaning is just that because of the, the principle of covenantal representation, um, which we don't really get in our culture very well we we tend to think that we're just completely independent from those who came before us but that's not how the bible sees things and and we we see that original sin comes to us from our father adam we also see that imputed righteousness comes to us from our our covenant head christ as we trust in him and live in him um So, covenantal representation. Levi is, in a sense, he's present in the activities of his great-grandfather. So, the next time you talk to your kids about something that happened before they were born, you can just say, "Ah, you were still in my loins at that point. Um, I I hope that the point of this section and where it's going is, is pretty clear. That since the patriarch Abraham, the father of faith he received god's blessing through a priest who was greater than his descendants the levites who would become priests because abraham needed that we need that too we need a superior priest one who is a king of righteousness and a king of peace we need him to bless us with righteousness and with peace Next, the text goes on to speak about those priestly descendants of Abraham and to show that the Old Testament priesthood was incomplete. We see this in verses 11 through 14. It says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, remember that word perfection, especially in Hebrews, it means completion, it means finality, uh, getting things where they need to go. If that was available, attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron if you if something is perfect you don't keep getting hints about how we need to get a replacement right um the the re, that's the reasoning here that if there's a hint this persistent hint of a new solution that's coming such as what we see in Psalm 110 it says uh about this person in the future, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So it's hinting that something different is coming, something better is coming. We wouldn't have hints like that if the existing thing, the Levitical priesthood, wasn't somehow insufficient. And the text continues For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests, right? In, in Israel, kings were from Judah, priests were from Levi, unless the rules change with a new priesthood. The fact that Jesus is the priest king prophesied in Psalm 110 shows that the Mosaic law ne- no longer held sway over these matters. A change in priesthood necessitated a change in the law Again, there was nothing flawed about the Mosaic Law, right? It was a good gift given by God to steward the people until the time of Christ. But the law was unable to attain perfection on its own. This conclusion is drawn out because the original recipients of Hebrews, the people who first looked at these writings, they were tempted to go back to Judaism in order to escape the suffering that was uniquely coming upon Christians at that time. They wanted to blend in. They wanted to go back to these systems, these structures they were familiar with. So they needed to be reminded that the Jewish temple didn't have a priesthood that could lead them to completion. It was a steward. It was a temporary placeholder. But now the truer priest had arrived. Now, you may not be tempted to return to another priesthood, literal religious priesthood, or or maybe you are, I don't know but it is true that we all seek guidance or help in our search for experiences of purity and peace, and you need to see this in this text that hoping in lesser advocates will leave you incomplete. You know, Maybe that person or that system played a role in your life, but now it's time to hang all of your hopes on the one high priest who can deliver, the one who's greater than the greatest mediators we have sought, the one who brings perfection where all systems that depend on mortal people, will fail. So the, previous, the previous priesthood couldn't lead to perfection. But Jesus' priesthood, in the order of Melchizedek, represents a better hope. We see this in verses 15 and 19. That the lack of the Levitical priesthood becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. Who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, or as witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So not only does Melchizedek resemble Jesus, not only was Melchizedek greater than Levi, not only is the Levitical priesthood unable to bring perfection, but Jesus. "...has appeared in the order of Melchizedek, changing all the rules of priesthood forever. No longer do we need mediators who are weak and vulnerable in place because the law, just because the law says that they are the person. Our great high priest has claimed his place through the power of an indestructible life. When Jesus rose from the dead, when he ascended into heaven, he proved that he is a priest forever." Now, the people of Israel didn't go out to look for a priest like that, but God sovereignly and graciously established him. He was promised thousands of years before. He was established in the fullness of time by God's grace. And the implications of this are huge. The implications of a great high priest like this are simply huge, and it's, we're not going to be able to get to them all today. It's going to take the rest of chapter 7 and chapter 8 for us to unpack this. But a big piece of what this passage is saying is that Jesus is the end of the old rules. The old rules, whether you're Jewish or pagan or humanist, say that there is this elite class of mediators. And you have to gain access to them and you have to follow the prescribed activities in order to attain that peace and that purity that you seek. And this is a burden and it requires repeated effort and its effectiveness can never be 100% certain. This text says that on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and its uselessness for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. A better hope than what? Yes, better than the order of Levi. But the scope of this greatness discussed all the way back to chapter 5, it's beyond just the comparison with Levi. And we'll see that. In the passages going forward. Jesus is a better hope. Than any other that we might grasp for. To find lasting refuge. Any sort of advocate. Like hey get me there. Can you get me to. to," Whatever it is enlightenment. Whatever however we picture that. um, We know that Jesus gets us to the real deal. The living God. The first hearers. Had been grasping after the Jewish priesthood. So they needed to be told to let that go. You and I. Maybe have been grasping after other systems and reassurances. Maybe it's refuge in religious systems. Maybe it's refuge in family members as, as priests toward our okayness. Or maybe it's pleasure or maybe job success. And you, know, you followed all the rules that you know to derive the security that you sought. But the remedy never stuck because the problem went too deep. It wasn't just a problem around you. It was a problem within you because ultimately all of our situations aren't unique. We are all sinners in the need of a righteous God. And he alone gives us that peace that we seek. So the pure and peaceful life is simply unattainable through the priestly entities to which we so naturally cling. But there is one king of righteousness and peace. And when he was tempted toward corrupting himself for comfort or for ego or for power. He suffered as we did, but was without sin. He proved his purity. And going on to make cosmic peace by the blood of his cross, Jesus said to his followers, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. This king of righteousness and peace, he has made himself known in this most widely disseminated of all books. He's also made himself known In this room, here today, he is making himself known to you. You must come to Jesus Christ, the king of righteousness, the king of peace. I don't know what spirituality you're trying to achieve, what sort of transcendent bliss you're trying to reach, or what other source of peace that's lesser that you're trying to connect with. But there's only one priest who can make the connection that will satisfy and can we just stop and, and appreciate the beauty of God's revelation here? I mean, we've got this situation 4,000 years ago with Melchizedek, this seemingly random interaction, and it's recorded for us and is preserved for us today so that we could see what Jesus is like. And then this inspiration given to, G- to David 3,000 years ago, As he's doing his daily devotions in Genesis, the Holy Spirit grabs David as prophet and convinces him, hey, Melchizedek is a picture of your greater heir, the coming Messiah. And then 2,000 years ago, Jesus arrives and Jesus tells the Pharisees, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the following Passover in the city of Salem, Jesus holds out bread and wine to the blessed ones at his last supper. And then the next day, he performed his priestly duty. He offered the one sacrifice that was needed, the sacrifice of himself to atone for our sin. But through the power of an indestructible life, he wasn't absorbed by death. No, it was the other way around. The better hope... Introduced by the arrival of this forever priest imparts the confidence we need. It it gives us confidence of God's welcome as we draw near through Jesus. We don't need to fear that we'll be deemed unacceptable. Like Abraham, we can believe God's promises and we can receive the firm blessings from the priest of God Most High. We all seek the blessings of peace and righteousness. And the experiences of Abraham, our father in the faith, they're, they're prophetic in a way for us. Because when we return from the battles that are appointed for us in this life, the true king of peace and righteousness will come out of the city of peace, the heavenly Jerusalem, to meet us. And the blessing that he speaks on us then will transform us forever. In the meantime, our priest does hold out bread and wine as emblems to remind us that he is the only mediator we will ever need.